Praise be to God, we return, dear brethren, to that elementary principle, that building block of a healthy Christian life called repentance. Our studies are under the title of Making Repentance Clear. And the last time we were on this subject was two Sundays ago. We were in the second teaching on this topic. And we were looking into five primary principles derived out of the beautiful display of clear repentance as found in Daniel's life and prayer and Daniel chapter 9. We covered the first two of the five principles. I will remind you of what those first two principles were, and then we'll get straight to the third principle. And if the Lord allows, we will work our way through to the fifth this afternoon. The first principle is the following. Biblical repentance understands by the books the characteristics and consequences of sin. That is to say, when we're discussing the topic of repentance... This is not a conversation that we're having with one another about our various opinions, about my preferences or your ideas. This should be about us personally and then communally, that is, as a church, going to God's Word, placing ourselves under its authority, discovering how it describes the Christian life, And when we see that we don't measure up either through a sin of commission or a sin of omission, that is the time to implement the building block of a healthy Christian life and make repentance clear to our hearts or to one another on that particular issue. We understand repentance by the books. We need to be under the authority of God's Word. We need to be reading and hearing preaching from God's Word. The second principle is the following. Biblical repentance clears things up with God first through personal conviction and private petition. At the end of the day, every transgression is against God's holiness. And until we recognize that, there again, we're not finding ourselves under the authority of God and His Word and His oversight. We are construing repentance as more of a factor or an issue about the various viewpoints of those who are within our ambit, whether within our family, within our church, various brothers and sisters in Christ that we might have fellowship with, and we can falsely reduce this question of repentance into the sphere of various ideas as opposed to, once again, being under the Word of God and realizing that it is with God with whom we have to do. This brings us then to the third principle, which we will see established in Daniel's beautiful display of clear repentance. In Daniel chapter 9, it will be extracted from the 7th through 10th verses. And the principle is this. 
Biblical repentance is clear about who owes who. Who is the debtor and who is the redeemer? Who is in the red and who shed his blood? You'll see what this is all about as we get into these verses. Beginning with verse 7, Daniel is continuing to bring his repentance forth to the Lord. O Lord, righteousness belongs unto thee. That is what you deserve. That is what is owed to you. Righteousness belongs unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are afar off, they who had been dispersed as a consequence of their sins and the breaking of covenant faithfulness. Daniel recognizes that himself and his community is in in, in experience of suffering the consequences of their sins. And he is expressing himself as a debtor toward God. We continue to read, These that are dispersed through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them because of their trespasses, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, what belongs to us? What do we owe? What belongs to us is confusion of face to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against Him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Now it will help us to better understand this concept of who owes who, who is the debtor, and who is the redeemer, who is in the red, And rather than say who is in the black, which would be the opposite concept in a financial category, I would say who is in the light. Or we could say who shed his blood and bring in a corresponding concept of red. And the appropriateness of the concept of red is better understood when you realize that the phrase in the King James Version, which says... What belongs to us is confusion of faces. The New King James Bible translates it as open shame. What belongs to us is the sense of shame, which is to say a sense of being a debtor, a sense of embarrassment for sin, a sense of sorrow, and a countenance that is reflecting a contrition for the sin that has been committed. And so it is very clear that Daniel is aware of who owes who. What belongs to God is righteousness. What belongs to God is mercy and forgiveness. He does not have to give it. He is not obligated to give it. When one is operating in biblical repentance, one does not feel as though one is owed 
some reconciliation. Just because one exists in the church or one thinks of oneself as a Christian or one has a history within the community of God. Daniel, who is quite a righteous man, is clearly stating his own sense of sin as being a part of the community of God's people. And he recognizes that he is a debtor. He recognizes that what is in his bank account is shame. They are in the red. They ought to be blushing. They ought to be sorry for their sins. And God is owed the confession of sin. God is owed the sense of shame that sin should produce in our hearts. And this whole matter of who owes who is so very important because it is often the case that they who don't repent either at all or very clearly are carrying around with them a distorted sense of who they are relative to God, who they are relative to the ministry, who they are relative to the church. They feel as if they're owed something just because they're there. And Daniel isn't expressing that at all. Dear brethren, a slight payment in terms of a sense of sorrow for sin, a bartering repentance that looks like you're only going to pay as little as possible. It's very difficult to squeeze out any true words of repentance or sense of sorrow out of such an individual. When we function with a slight payment of confession and a sense of turning and a sense of getting right with God, when we are bartering with the Lord as it relates to how we should hear His Spirit speaking to us, to what depths we should change, these are a symptom of a lack of shame, a lack of repentance, a lack of appreciation for the Redeemer. This is to fail to understand who is the debtor and who is the redeemer in this walk that we are all a part of, dear brothers and sisters. We need a redeemer because we are debtors. And when we have been in sinful conduct, even as believers, we need the application of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must understand in the language of Daniel, what belongs to whom? To us, the debt belongs. And Jesus is the Redeemer. And to the extent that we understand that deep in our soul, then we will not offer a slight payment in terms of contrition, in terms of sorrow for sin, in terms of expressing ourselves before God and one another. We will not barter as it relates to what repentance should look like. We will be like Daniel and say, righteousness belongs to you, Lord. Righteous is your word. Righteous are your ways. To me belongs confusion of face, shame for my behavior. Sadly, however, one of the reasons why God's church and therefore Christians don't function in this form of clear repentance is because they are under unfaithful ministers. We thank God that this is not always the case. But it was the case in Israel's history. It has also been the case in the history of the Christian churches since their founding. 
That is to say, there have been traces of this to one extent or another all throughout the history of the Christian church. But here the language of this sort of ministry as is given to us in Jeremiah's prophecy in the sixth chapter beginning in the 14th verse. We're going to read here why it is that there is an absence of an understanding of who is the debtor, who is the redeemer, who's in the red, and who's in the light. Who owes who? It's because unfaithful ministers, as we read in verse 14 of Jeremiah 6, they, that is unfaithful ministers, have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. What is the hurt that we're speaking about here? Well, as we will confirm in other passages, we're talking about the sin wound. We're talking about that sinful sickness abrasion, that introduction into the soul of the believer where there is some boil, some development in the skin that metaphorically is a wound in your relationship to God. And rather than the ministry probe the sensitivity of that sin wound, because they themselves don't examine themselves very deeply, and they don't wish to deal with the opposition of those to whom they minister, then as we are being told here, they heal the sin wound only slightly. They just touch it a little bit. And then they say, peace, peace, you're okay, brother, you're okay, sister. There isn't any really deep problem here. You have a little bit of repentance. You bartered a little bit with us to get right with God. Sure, we'll accept your slight payment. Because after all, the church owes you a place in the meeting, a place in the temple. God owes you a place before His throne. So though you have a profound sickness of sin, we will not probe that and stir up what that might feel in your life. Because we are not faithful ministers, we don't believe that the Spirit of the Lord can bring true conviction to somebody's heart that will so touch their inner soul, that they will cry out for mercy and ask God to heal them thoroughly. They don't believe that the preaching of God's Word can actually be received in their time, so they ought to just heal the sin wounds slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so the churches and Christians operate in a mode of effectively bartering with God when they are in sin and offering slight and slim payments because they don't understand what belongs to whom, who owes who in this matter of Christian living. Continue with verse 15 out of Jeremiah 6. Listen to the language. When you're under this ministry, when you're under this pattern, when you accept that this is a possible way for you to live with God because other people do, and you can find a minister somewhere who will deal with you this way, or a counselor, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's some other minister somewhere, maybe it's your husband, who will just speak to you slightly and say you just have small little issues when actually you have a very profound wound, a very cancerous, a very oozing sin wound in your soul. 
What happens when you come under that influence and you allow yourself to lose the sense of what you owe, that you are a debtor before God as a consequence of your behavior? Then what is said in verse 15 will take place. Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? Nay, they were not ashamed. Neither could they blush. They could not get red in the face. They could not have shame because they didn't understand what Daniel so clearly is speaking about here. Oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Lord, you are holy. Lord, you are perfect. Lord, holiness belongs to your house. Lord, you speak your word through your ministers. Righteousness belongs to you. And to the extent that I haven't lived up to that righteousness, that I have violated your word, that I have walked contrary to your servants, O Lord, I am ashamed. I blush before you. I realize that I'm a debtor and that I owe you. But here we're looking at a situation where that shame is not occurring. Where in the language of John the Baptist, there are no fruits in speech and in conduct and in countenance that is in keeping with the depth of repentance that is necessary. You remember with me that John the Baptist was expecting a certain sense of shame for sin. He was expecting the Jewish people to understand that they needed to come before Almighty God and before they got baptized in the Jordan River, they had to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance to show God that they understood who they were before Him. And it's interesting to continue to read through Jeremiah 6 because first of all, the Lord warns such individuals that allow a slight healing of the sin wound. He says, therefore, you will fall among them that fall. At the time when I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. And the reason why is because they fail to see that if you're going to embrace the old rugged cross, then God requires that you also embrace the old rugged paths of solid righteous living and you don't accept and heap to yourselves teachers because you have itching ears to hear somebody say peace, peace, when there is no peace. You don't follow the pattern of what we read in Jeremiah 5 and verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means and my people love to have it so. Just like in Jeremiah chapter 6, God says in the end of that verse, verse 31 of Jeremiah 5, He says, And what will you do in the end thereof? Dear brothers and sisters, I'm encouraging you toward making repentance clear. I'm encouraging you to know who is the debtor in your walk before God and who is the Redeemer. Who is the one that is giving all the benefits for you to enter into God's kingdom. That is Jesus. He is the Redeemer. He's in the red because He shed His blood. We are the debtors and should understand that we are in the red because we have yet to manifest back to God in appreciation for all that He has done through us through the exercise of godly living and through repentance when we recognize that we have fallen short of the mark, that we are in the red in terms of actual sanctified life. 
And one way in which you'll experience this is if you will do what verse 16 says of Jeremiah 6, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old rugged paths. Do you desire the old rugged path, my brothers and sisters? Do you desire an old rugged path, minister? Or do you want to have teachers that will tickle your ears? Do you love to have it so? Do you want to only have your sin wounds touched slightly? Then you're among those who barter when it comes to repentance. And as is said here, God could say, was Brother John... Was Sally ashamed when she committed these sins? No, they weren't ashamed at all. They didn't turn red at all. They weren't blushed. Maybe they were red in anger. Maybe they were flushed as they tried to barter their way back into the church or back into God's presence. God is saying here, ask for the old paths. That is where the good way is found the way that leads to everlasting life. Walk therein and you will find rest for your souls. Because when God by his spirit probes thoroughly the sin wound, I know very well how painful and difficult that is. But if you will allow the sturgeon of heaven to get down deep into what goes down to the very core of your being and to scrape it out and to address it and to put the balm of Gilead on it, then when he's cleaned you up and he's washed his hands after doing such surgery on your soul and he applies the blood of Christ and forgiveness, you will then convalesce and find rest for your souls. Where there is no peace, saith the Lord to the wicked. But you remember verse 16 says, even with that recommendation, still there are those that can't speak like Daniel and say, I know who owes who. And what's going on in my life? I know I'm the debtor. I know you're the Redeemer, God. No, he says, they won't walk therein. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, wicked men confess their sins. Maybe that surprises you. It doesn't surprise a good, solid Puritan. Wicked men confess their sins, but they never grieve for their sins. They confess their sins, but they are not ashamed of their sins. They confess their sins, but they cannot blush for their sins. That's Thomas Brooks. You should be alerted, dear brothers and sisters, as we're thinking through what these principles entail. It is helpful to contrast a healthy display of clear repentance over against those manifestations that they do pass for the genuine in the assessment of less spiritually discerning individuals. They wouldn't understand what Thomas Brooks says. People can bring forth all the language, but when it's absent the shame, when it's absent the blushing, when it's absent the overt sense of I'm the debtor and I'm not here to bargain, I'm here to repent. When you see how that form of false spiritual development is displayed in the Bible, you can better get a sense of what the true should look like. We've already read some things from Jeremiah chapter 6. I want to bring to your attention 
the reality that if we as Christians, confessing Christians, if we don't yield to the Spirit's conviction, if He is striving with us day after day, year after year, over a pattern of sinful behavior, and where we instead of seeing ourselves as debtors and being ashamed for our sin and coming before the Lord as our Redeemer and just humbling ourselves and asking Him to apply His redemption to such a wicked sinner as I and using language just like that, brothers and sisters, and we are constantly bartering and bringing slight payments and little small adjustments in the way that we're responding to how God is convicting us by the Spirit then it might surprise you to learn that God himself will ultimately lighten up the work of his surgery in your life. The healing pains that come from his spirit will be reduced as he draws away from dealing as deeply with your life. And why would that be? Because in spite of his efforts to deal with the sin wounds in your life, you don't manifest a sense of who owes who like Daniel did. You don't understand what belongs to God and what belongs to you. What belongs to us is confusion of face when we've been in patterns of sin. Shame for our behavior. What belongs to God is righteousness. What belongs to God is the gift of forgiveness. He does not have to give it. And therefore we should come before Him with contrition, with a heart of love before God for the thought that He might be merciful and thoroughly cleanse me, but I need to come before Him as one who is a debtor and desiring this change. But there comes a point in the lives of God's people who don't operate in the way that I'm describing here. And in spite of God's efforts through chastening and through the preaching of the Word, in spite of the work of His Spirit over time, trying to get into that wound, but you allow it to be calloused over, you just resist His work. Then as we read in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 5, you'll see that God Himself will lighten up His work in your life. It says in verse 5 of Isaiah 1, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. And then he describes this sinful condition as I'm stating in the metaphor of a body that is rife with wounds and blemishes and boils and disease. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even onto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment, because they haven't listened to God's ministry. And as a result, these wounds have not been healed. And the time comes, dear brothers and sisters, where the Lord says, why should I chasing you any further. You'll just simply rebel more. If I speak straight to your soul, if I say to you what you really need to hear, that's been attempted before. And no longer is God going to do that because He Himself says there, you will just rebel more and more. And you might remember with me that this set of reflection is completely applicable to the children of Israel because they had been chastened 
for their sins. They were dispersed out of their homeland and spread across, spread across the nations. And all I need to ask you is how many among those Jews had a heart to be restored to God's temple, to be restored to Jerusalem? Only a very small number, brothers and sisters, had a heart to go back to the beauty of Jerusalem, to long for the beauty of God's temple and church. And you might think, well, their lives are fairly blessed there in Babylon. They've got their synagogues and God must be accepting and approving of them. No, he just ceased striving with them because they would just rebel more and more if they were to hear the straight word of Jeremiah and Ezekiel because they had heard it and they weren't changing. Jeremiah 2 and verse 30, God says, In vain I have smitten your children. They receive no correction. Why would that be? How could it possibly be the case in my life or in your life that there are things that need to be addressed in my soul? There are putrefying sores of sinful behavior in my life that the heavens know of. How can it be that God is seeking to address this within me, but all of his smiting, all of his correction is nonetheless Though it's happening, though it's truly happening, they were truly dispersed. They were truly taken out of their homeland. Sometimes their children were ripped right out of their family, as was Daniel, for example, and taken away. How can it be that in spite of all of that experience in which we are told, I have smitten your children, but it's been in vain. How can it be? It's because unlike Daniel, repentance is not clear in their mind. They don't understand what belongs to God and what belongs to me. What belongs to God is His divine authority, is His Word. What belongs to God is His rule and lordship in my life. What belongs to God is His ministry and the proclamation of His Word. What belongs to me is obedience. What belongs to me is repentance and sorrow for sin. God said, it's been in vain. In Jeremiah chapter 5, in verse 3, we read, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? God's eyes are on the truth, brothers and sisters. That's the first principle that we've given you in last or two Sundays ago's teachings. Biblical repentance understands by the books. When you start putting this all together, you'll get to the third principle and you'll be with Daniel understanding Who owes who in this relationship that we have? Does God owe me happiness? Does God owe me a place in His church, in His kingdom? Does God owe me the opportunity for me to have whatever opinions I might have? Or do I owe God obedience to His word? And when you understand that, then I am saying to you, you will have a sense of shame for your sin. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Now, I'm sure they didn't appreciate the striking. I'm sure it bothered them. Do you understand that? But we're talking about the kind of grief that entails shame and sorrow and self-accusal. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, but I hope these teachings will help you. Where you say, I'm a debtor. 
Where you look in your life relative to what is God, what God is saying that you should do, and you admit to yourself, you have a sense of shame, and you say straightforwardly, I have not been obeying that. I am violating that principle. I am accusing myself. I am, I am sorry for my sin. I am convicted in my heart. You've stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. How could a Christian refuse to receive correction from Almighty God? It's because they don't understand who owes who. They don't know who is in the red in the sense of being the debtor and who is in the red because he went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. They don't understand this, brothers and sisters, and so there isn't a sense of shame for sin in the churches all too often. They don't speak like Daniel. I know what belongs to God. Righteousness belongs to God. Forgiveness and mercy belongs to Him. Just because I walk through the church doors doesn't mean that I'm owed a place in God's kingdom. He owes me a chance to share my view and to have my opinions and to more or less live the life I want to live as long as I adjust a little bit here and there. But we're basically partners in this. God's a partner and I'm there and we're pretty much equal and I can kind of argue with him about his word and if he tells me I'm wrong, I can kind of barter my way out of it. It's not what we're talking about here. And you're seeing, if you're following along with me, as I'm reading just a few of many, many passages in the Bible that express God's perspective that is saying, no, if you're in sin, you owe God repentance and contrition. And they who refuse to receive correction, they who, in the language of Jeremiah 5 and verse 3, toward the end, they who make their faces hard as a rock. Have you ever seen someone who isn't experiencing a sense of contrition for sin? Have you ever seen the countenance turn hard and gray like a rock? I have. They refuse to return. Listen to these statements of Jeremiah chapter 7, a couple more passages that speak to this problem. First of all, verse 13. This is what all of this will ultimately lead to, dear brethren. And now, because you have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not and I called you, but you answered not. Now let's pause once again at this point. If God was speaking to Daniel, what would have happened? Daniel would have listened. You know why? Because as he says, to God belongs righteousness. To God belongs honor. To God belongs truth. To me belongs obedience. To me belongs humility. And when I find that I have violated God's word and I have rebelled against his authority, as Daniel says to us, belongs a sense of shame in our countenance, not a hard look, not a turning of a deaf ear. For when God's people do that, in spite of God speaking to them, Morning after morning, week after week, year after year, there's a fundamental lack of an understanding of who owes who in this relationship. And there are consequences for this sort of thing. 
But I'll bring you to one particular consequence. You, on your own, can read the 14th and the 15th verse of Jeremiah 7, and you can think through some of the consequences that are mentioned there. But I'm going to give you the consequence that is stated in verse 16. Because God has been rising up, speaking to His people about their sins, but they will not listen, He then says... Therefore, pray not for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Now, all of this that I've been bringing to your attention is designed to speak to how this problem develops in which God's people don't understand this principle that Daniel is expressing. They don't understand what belongs to God, what belongs to me. What is my place beneath God's word? What is my place beneath God's authority? And they sometimes don't understand that because ministry deals very slightly with the sin wounds of God's people and their friends and other Christian people deal very slightly with their own sins and with the sins of their brothers and sisters. Now, perhaps you worry that everyone will become a Pharisee as a consequence of a teaching along these lines. Well, if you were to become a Pharisee, you would have a pretty profound sin wound in your soul, and the Holy Spirit would begin to deal with you about that, and or more spiritual brethren, hopefully myself included, if I saw any of us in this assembly take a message like this and abuse it, then a more spiritual individual would come and begin to probe that sin wound in your life and speak to you directly about the carnal way in which you are exercising the care of your brother or sister. But it still is true that deceitful are the kisses of an enemy and faithful are the wounds of a friend. And what I'm stating to you is what you've seen here is God is showing you the ironic outcome of allowing yourself to be under this influence in this, this ministry wherever you get it and allowing yourself to deal with your own sins slightly and saying peace, peace and saying I'm more or less okay when God knows that is not the case. He is saying, eventually, I will stop smiting you. Eventually, I will heal you slightly. Eventually, in a sense, you'll get the idea that I'm saying you're okay. That can happen because he came to the point where he said to Jeremiah, stop even praying for these of my people, at least called by my name. Because God isn't going to be smiting them anymore. He's not going to be seeking to change them anymore. How different is that idea over against the edifying perspective and orientation of life that Peter recommends? I give it to you out of his first letter and the first chapter and verse 17 and 18. It says, if you, if you Christian, if you human being... If you redeemed individual, if you call on the Father, thanks be to God, He is your Father now. But remember who you are in this relationship. Remember who is the debtor and who is the Redeemer. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, then pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. I don't say condemnation. We always say we don't mean a cringing fear in the sense that you can't move, and we mean that. 
But we do say pass it in a sense of disposition that you owe God reverence. You owe him obedience. You owe him contrition of heart. You owe him submission to his word. You ought not argue with God. Pass the time of your sojourning in fear because you're the one being bought out of sin. You're the one who is in jail and needs to be bailed out. He's the redeemer. He's in red because he shed his blood. You're in the red because of your sins. Verse 18 says, For as much as while you're living your Christian life and you're under the ministry of the word and God is dealing with your soul through your own times of inspecting and opening your heart to his word through prayer and study, you remember that you were redeemed, not with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain life, received by tradition from your fathers. We remember who the Redeemer is, what belongs to God, what belongs to my Savior Jesus is a perfect life. All the treasures of wisdom and glory are in the Lord Jesus Christ. What belongs to him is the gold and the preciousness of his holy ways. I'm the one who doesn't know what that looks like. I'm the one who has to be ready to say, forgive me, Lord. Teach me, Lord, if I don't see where I should be. I'm not here to argue with me. Teach me what I don't see, Lord. Because I know I was redeemed by someone so glorious and so wonderful. I am the debtor. You are the glorious redeemer. I know what belongs to you and what belongs to me. And therefore, I'm going to pass the time of my sojourning in an appropriate attitude of fear and reverence, even though I call on God now as my father because he's brought me into his family. Think of how this played itself out in the persons of Simon the Pharisee and the weeping woman who without seeking to be too coarse, Simon saw as a wicked wench. I won't go through the entire account, but you'll find it in Luke chapter 7. Simon is a personable man, it appears. Indeed, he's a Pharisee that has a problematic element to it, but I don't know how prominent that needs to be in this story. He invites Jesus to dine with him in his house. He treats him very cordially. I don't think anybody in that room thought that Simon was a caustic and very unlikable personality. But when a woman came into his house who he knew had a sinful life behind her, and she began to pour out ointment on Jesus, and she began to weep, and she began to dry up those tears. Simon looked upon that and couldn't understand, what is this woman doing? Why would anybody do something like this? And how is Jesus allowing this to happen? I can tell you in a short statement, Jesus is letting this woman make repentance clear. And Simon can't even make sense of why someone would act that way. It's so humiliating. It's so personally unrespectable, both for the woman and for Jesus. How could he be involved in this sort of weeping and crying? And maybe, maybe her nose was running somewhat as she's, as she's, you know, ministering to Christ. And that's maybe a bit of a problem. I don't know if it was or was not, you know, dripping on his leg or something. And he just can't see this and understand this. Because he doesn't understand who owes who. 
Jesus will say to him, though I won't read the entire passage, I came into your house, you didn't give me a kiss, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't feel like you really owed me anything. You don't know what belongs to me, Simon, and what belongs to you, but this woman does. Verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, because she feels like such a debtor. She loves so much because she felt like you have forgiven me so much. So what belongs to me is this expression of love, as Thomas Manton puts it, repentance is but mourning, love, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Repentance is your love for God when you realize that though you do love Him, you've fallen short and now He's convicted your soul and you understand what belongs to God and what belongs to you and what belongs to me is confusion of face and blushing and redness and sorrow for sin. And because I love you, Lord Jesus, I want to make this clear to everybody. I don't care what they think of me when I do it. I would say to you, the reason why this woman conducted herself in that way is because her Redeemer was in her midst and she felt from the inside of her soul what this relationship should look like. I should take this very expensive ointment. I should break it and pour it upon Jesus. I should weep out of the depths of my soul and wipe the tears with my hair because that's all I have. I should give him everything because I owe him everything. And Jesus said, she goes back to her house forgiven. The Redeemer was in her midst. Dear brother or sister, is the Redeemer in the midst of your life? Is he in the midst of your prayer life? Is really the Redeemer in the midst of your reflections? Do you sense the Redeemer when you're under the ministry of the Word? Or is he not something that you discern? In the language of Zephaniah, chapter 3 and verse 5, we read, The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will do no iniquity. Every morning, He brings His judgment to light and He fails not. But in the case of Zephaniah and verse 5 of chapter 3, the scenario that he is speaking to is more applicable to Simon and not the weeping woman. Why do I say that? Because the verse ends with this statement, but the unjust know no shame. The unjust knoweth no shame. Do you understand what I'm saying? Zephaniah is saying, the Lord is in the midst of Israel. He is not a sinner. He is godly and righteous. And every morning from His Word and through His ministry and His Spirit, if you will humble yourself, He rises to bring forth a sense of His holiness. And He never fails. The only way that your life is not progressing in sanctification is if you don't understand what belongs to God and what belongs to you. Your name is on the church roll, so you think that you're all set. You don't see yourself as a debtor any longer. You say, I'm justified by faith, and praise God, so am I. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't even be in the family to be able to relate to my father and say, I'm sorry, Father. Forgive me for my debts every day, Lord. Forgive me for my debts. And here are some of them that I'm thinking about this morning that I know you're working on. And I'm not here to barter with you, Lord, about it. You have every right to tell me whatever it is you want me to change. You have every right, no matter how deep or how hard it hurts. You have every right. You're my savior. You're my redeemer. I'm the one in the red because of my lifestyle and the traditions of my father. My, 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 my lineage has brought me down into the red. But I can't barter my way in mitigating what repentance should look like. I'm in the red. What belongs to me is all these problems, confusion of faith. What belongs to you is what you already have, righteousness. And I'm here to acknowledge that and to give back everything I can in clear repentance to walk with you when you're in the midst of me. I don't want to be a Christian that knows no shame. You remember the publican in Luke 18. Don't forget. What are we told about the sinner who went to prayer but wound up going to his home forgiven? We are told he would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven. Maybe you think that's horrible. Maybe you think he must have been in an oppressive sense of condemnation. And you fail to realize he's just operating in the same sense of clear repentance that Daniel speaks of. He knows what belongs to God and what belongs to him. What belongs to God is glory, is holiness, is exaltation, is a place of right standing. What belongs to me is the sin that I've committed. What belongs to me are the sinful wounds that are still in the process of being healed. What belongs to me is the dirty feet that have been at a minimum in the world and need to be washed. And I don't even dare, when I'm under certain experiences of conviction, even lift your eyes up to heaven. Thomas Boston, a good Presbyterian Scottish preacher sometime between the heart of the Puritan era, let's say, and the era of Jonathan Edwards. He says, real repentance is deep sorrow. That is a sense of debt. Peter, repenting, wept bitterly. Do you remember that? He went out and he wept bitterly. He that would have a good crop plows well. And he that would build surely or certainly goes deep with the foundation. It was the want of depth of earth that was the ruin of the stony ground hearers. Matthew 13, the beautiful principle of the parable of the sower is that you've got to plow deep if the seed is going to have an effect in your life. And there's little understanding about the truths of that parable if you don't realize that when it comes to the operation of God's Word and how you have to get it down in your soul when you've been violating it, you've got to let God's whole plow deep or there will be no clear repentance. Deep digging was the safety of the house founded on a rock. Luke 6.43 This sorrow is a rending of the heart 
Joel 2, 13, a rending of it as the plow rends the earth, Jeremiah 4, 3, a pricking and piercing of it as with daggers, swords, and spears, Acts 2, 37. Think about Acts 2 and verse 37. Did not God's preacher touch the sin wound very pointedly? He said, you by wicked hands have crucified and slain Jesus. And rather than heal their wounds slightly, he operated in faith and in obedience to the Holy Spirit and directly addressed their sin. And thanks be to God, they were cut to the heart. And they said, we're the debtors. We're not here to barter. What must we do to be right with God? That's the sound. That's the statement of someone who knows what belongs to God and what belongs to me. They just discovered through the preaching of the word something that they were not convicted a moment ago. And that was that they had sinned against God. And they didn't try to bring forth all of their previous righteousness or say that we are children of Abraham. They were caught to the heart. They said, what belongs to God is this analysis of my life, this preaching from Peter, that belongs to God. What belongs to me is say, how much do I owe? Or better yet, what can I do? Because really, I can't do anything, but what can I do? Oh, and thanks be to God. This is not a message of condemnation because God says, when you're in that condition, confess your sin and I will forgive you. But don't barter with me about it. Don't obfuscate. Don't have a hard, cold countenance about it. You may remember when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, and forgive us our ophelema. He said, I don't remember that. Well, that's because you didn't read it in the Greek. (laughs) I'm just confirming for extra credit that it says, forgive us our debts. You might have thought that the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount said, forgive us our sins. Well, it would get to the same point, but it actually says, forgive us our debts. And Zacchaeus is a beautiful example of this, among many other examples. When he came to the Lord, he said, you know what? Half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from someone through a false accusation... I will restore him fourfold. Do you get the sense of what's going on here? Zacchaeus isn't bartering with Jesus, isn't coming as little as possible from his previous patterns of life and just amending them a little bit because he is convicted as he should be for these violations of a holy God. And it's not enough to say, well, men are men and all the publicans do this sort of thing. Are you hearing what I'm saying? How is it that we can have men who have been under a word like this, who have been in the ministry, many of which have divorced their wives and married other women, and still some of them continue in the ministry? That's one example of the phenomenon that I'm speaking of, where very obviously you don't know who owes who. You don't know what belongs to God and what belongs to you. What belongs to you at this moment is a sense of utter shame for bringing such reproach on the name of Jesus. But I would say to you, you also failed to see that prior to the divorcing of your wife and your involvement with another woman, you forgot to realize what belongs to you is whatever providence brings your way. 
Whatever trials you have, you can pray about it. You can fast and pray about it. You can seek God's mind and wisdom as to how to manage it. But what belongs to you is the trials and the difficulties of life. What belongs to God is the pattern of godly behavior and righteous standards that you just have to live under like everybody else. And not say, well, you don't know my story. You don't know my wife or you don't know my husband or you don't know my in-laws or you don't know this or you don't know that. What belongs to us, brothers and sisters, is quite simple. Obedience. What belongs to God is glorious righteousness and all of the spiritual benefits that Christ has wrought for us that he can dispense into our lives and does, but they belong to him. We only receive them through Christ Jesus. And you can't force God or barter with Him. That is an insult to the work of Christ to barter for what this Redeemer and not silver and gold has brought in your life, but the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You weren't redeemed with corruptible things. You might remember that the prodigal who manifests clear repentance... Like Daniel expresses, when he came back to his father, he said, I know what belongs to you and what belongs to me. What belongs to you is this house and this peace and this place that I once was within and could have kept, but I sinned my way out of it. What belongs to me is nothing. Make me a servant. I'm not worthy to be even called your son. And once again, if you think preaching like this will result in condemnation into the experience of God's people. No, I don't think so, brothers and sisters, because the Father will come running to someone like Daniel who knows who owes who, and he is so gracious, and he owns the fatted calf, he owns the glorious robe and the ring and the new shoes and whatever you want to think about, and he in his mercy will forgive if you meet the conditions. I mean, he doesn't have to, but he will. If you meet the conditions and you come in the way that we're describing here, Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, this self-accusing is necessary that we may know how much we are indebted to grace. Look into your bill. What owest thou? Once again, Thomas Boston says, true repentance is an abiding sorrow, a true debt. It is not a passing feeling, a flash of an affection, which is deceitful, but it is a spirit of heaviness. True repentance goes through the phase of a spirit of heaviness as Isaiah 61 in verse 3 speaks of. If you want your life to really be granted that glorious robe of the garment of praise. I point you back to the prodigal story for your reflection. If you want the Father to bring out the glorious robe of the garment of praise, then first there needs to be a spirit of heaviness in repentance for the sin in our life. Amen. And even if it's before you're regenerated. Don't you have to be sorry for your sin in order to bring repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ? God help us 
with raise the hand, sign a card, and become a church member form of Christian living. Because there's no real contrition and cutting to the heart before you even enter the Christian life. That's why there's no shame in the church. Because it never started with a sense of shame. It was just a relative shift and a bartering with God. I'll pick up a little bit of religion. Maybe this will help my life. I see this in people's lives, brothers and sisters. No sense of who God is over against who we are. And nothing can go right under those circumstances. No, if you want a garment of praise to be on your life, you have to distinguish it from a glorying that is not good. That might be what you've adorned yourself with. Like in 1 Corinthians 5, there's sin in your church, there's sin in your life. There are things that God is trying to address and godly men are trying to speak to you about. But there's no shame. There's no change. There's no deep alteration. There's grief for external factors that don't make life go so well, whatever. But there's no deep plowing. There's no real sense of what belongs to God, what belongs to His Word, what belongs to His holiness. And what should I own? What belongs to me, my sins, my behavior, my pattern for years? And to the extent that somehow we still glory, we still say God's with me, we still pat ourselves on the back. You say, don't you want everybody to be happy, Brother William? No, not if they're going to be happy all the way as they are sinking down into hell and saying, Lord, Lord, it's all going to work out. He says, no, it's not. Brothers and sisters, you've got to make sure that you don't have a glorying that's not good. If you get the garment of praise, you've gone through a spirit of heaviness. And I don't mean as a consequence of reaping and sowing and you're just in the mode of life isn't working so well, so it's kind of depressing. I'm talking about what we're talking about here. Contrition for sin. Thomas Boston goes on to say, The sorrows of many are like a summer shower that wets the surface of the ground, but is soon dried up before it does any good. Godly sorrow is like Mary Magdalene, who mourned until she found the Lord. Amen. Oh, he's working off of an image, but it speaks so truthfully to what we're addressing here. You remember that after Jesus' crucifixion, he was placed in Joseph of Arimathea's sepulcher. And when Mary came to that sepulcher early in the morning on the first day of the week, she couldn't find the Lord. She couldn't find the Lord. Now, in her case, it wasn't because she was in sin and her sin had separated her from her God. And that was the central cause. But the principle Thomas Manton or Thomas Boston is using and we find with Mary that she's weeping and she's mourning. Why? Well, we know why. Because the angels say to her, woman, why weepest thou? And she says, somebody's taken away my Lord and I don't know where he is. And that's what Thomas Boston is saying, is real repentance, a real sense of debt doesn't barter and trade slightly in alterations in behavior because such an individual doesn't realize that you don't have the Lord in your life. And that's why we can preach a message like this and yet be positive because we can offer Jesus to such souls and offer you a true healer, the true bomb of Gilead. True repentance knows when the Lord has been taken away 
or the Lord has never really been in your life. Amen. If you find yourself in that condition, anyone who ever hears these messages, then the Holy Spirit, God will use whatever means to clear things up, to tell you where the Lord is. You can find the Lord through a godly minister. Give him a call and ask his counsel. I'm saying that Mary Magdalene said, I don't know where they've laid him and I'm mourning until I find him. Dear brothers and sisters, that is true repentance. And how different that is from the conduct that was so often characterized or characteristic of God's people. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 4 says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. Well, this goodness can be an approximation to repentance and to reformation, you see. Have you ever heard about the alcoholic who is quote-unquote repentant? Sometimes these men or women aren't even regenerate. And they sometimes show more convincing motions of repentance than some confessing Christians. In terms of the reformation of some of the patterns of their life, for some reason or other. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I am pointing out that one can be an unregenerate individual and grieve at some level about your behavior. I had one brother in particular that conducted himself in that way not infrequently until he died of an overdose. He would grieve and he would try to make amends to those that he had hurt. And I could tell you the various stories that fill out the details. But what I'm saying here using the alcoholic that recognizes that my pattern of life, even though left to myself, I would just continue night after night, but my family is opposing, my children is opposing, the police are opposing, my boss is is opposing me. And so, because of the circumstances, they get a little bit of a grip on their life. And they don't want to lose their reputation. They don't want to lose their standing in the community. They have various things that speak to their heart about why they would want to reform. And so they make some reform. They go to the Alcoholic Anonymous counseling sessions. They make some changes for some period of time. And the less discerning, and I'm not saying don't be helpful, uh, well, helpful or hopeful. I'm not saying don't be hopeful in its proper manifestation. But some of the less discerning would say, oh, I guess they got saved. I guess they're Christians now. But they never even confessed Christ. And I'm using this to just speak of the principles. What I'm saying is if you pay attention to such individuals and they exist, you will see that their changes are like the morning cloud. We just go through cycle after cycle after cycle, like the clouds come and the clouds go away, and they get burned off as soon as a little bit of pressure comes upon their life, and it's right back to where it was before. Now, there is salvation for such behaviors. Thank God Jesus is a mighty Savior. There's a gospel message in this that if you'll come to him like the prodigal, if you'll come to the end of yourself and realize that you are utterly bankrupt, 
and realize what belongs to God and what belongs to you and cry out to God for forgiveness for your specific sins. I say that for a reason, because I'm minded that we will likely need to conclude for today on just this third topic, but that's fine with my heart. And I make that remark because I want to direct your thoughts toward Esau at this moment as an individual who some think that he manifested repentance and God wouldn't grant him the gift of repentance. But I want to show you that that is not what happened. What was happening with Esau is he felt that he was owed something just because he was sad, just because he could summon sorrow for something, anything. In his case, I don't like the fact that things turned out that the way they did, and I'm really sorry about it. And I'm right in front of you, Isaac. I'm right in front of you, God. I'm showing you how sorry I am. If you're not aware of what I'm talking about, we won't take up the entire account, but I'll bring you to this verse in Genesis 27 and verse 38. We read, And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. O my father! And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Now I will tell you ahead of time that Hebrews chapter 12 picks up the person Esau and sets him before us as an example not to follow. And when it's bringing forth the account of Esau, it speaks of him sinking with tears. But I will make it clear to you from Genesis 27 and then show you in Hebrews chapter 12 that it is confirmed that Esau was not seeking repentance before God. And that was why he was weeping. He was seeking the blessing. That's why he was weeping. And there is a night and day distinction between the two. Let's look at it afresh. Esau says to his father, Oh, father, I sold my birthright. I conducted myself in a casual way. I was birthed into the covenant as the firstborn. You taught me and trained me about the preciousness of my place within God's program, within God's church, within this Christian family. And I was so frivolous and so casual and so self-centered with the preciousness of the place that you gave me. I sold it for a cheap price. I sold it to minister to myself. And Father, I'm coming to you now and saying, I am so repentant. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Please grant me your forgiveness. And by all means, bless Jacob. He's my brother. I love him. And the Work of God will go forward in this life. By all means, if that's God's providence, I owe you my repentance. You don't owe me anything. I sold my birthright. That's not what he's saying. He is coming before his father, not repenting for what he did. He wants to pass right by it. He wants Isaac, and sadly, Isaac was one of these individuals at this moment that was not wanting to probe the sin wound. He was going to heal 
Esau's wound very slightly and try to come up with some way of fitting him in even though he had sinned. And that was on his account before God and that matters. Notice the language. What does he say? Has thou but one blessing? You think he's talking about the blessing of forgiveness? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the blessing of the inheritance. However he gets to it is beside the point. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, he's not saying, first I'm bringing my repentance. I want you to forgive me for my sin, Father. And then he's open to God granting him some blessing after having forgiven him. None of that is in the picture because if that was in Esau's heart, he would not even be asking for any inheritance. He'd just leave that unspoken. He would only want to clear things up with God like the prodigal. I'm not worthy. I have sinned against you. Oh, I know these are strong words, but I'm going to speak again to marriages. And I'm going to say that there are individuals who are in difficult relationships and they're crying out to God, not in repentance. They want a blessing. I want somebody to love me. I want somebody to care about me. My husband, my wife doesn't. Well, you married them. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. But at the end of the day, I'm saying, you married them. What belongs to God and what belongs to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? God owes you? God owes you? Sister Pretty over there because you're a relatively righteous guy. God owes you, Brother Johnny over there, because you're a relatively godly woman and your husband doesn't appreciate you or however this all goes. Maybe 90% of the Christian community isn't open to the things that I'm ministering right now. I hope that isn't the case, but it's the Word of God before we even get to the question of the percentage of listeners. And I'm saying, what you would do is you would come before God and you would say, if it's true, if you think it's true, I sinned before you, Father. I didn't seek your mind and your will. I married for the wrong reasons, Lord. And I'm not asking you for anything except for grace to be faithful and to honor you in this relationship now that I'm here. That's it. That's, that's Daniel. That's the weeping woman. That's the publican. But it isn't Esau. Esau is the one who sold his birthright. And he is weeping, but it isn't the weeping of repentance. It's the weeping of regret. But it's weeping in order to get the blessing. Did you see it with me? Again, Genesis 27, verse 38. He's crying, bless me, even me also. I hope you hear the distinction. Some people's repentance is in that mode exactly. They're looking for a way out of their circumstances that they want to present as repentance, but all it is is, bless me, bless me also, do something for me. Why won't somebody do something for me? Oh, that's serious, friends. That's really seriously, seriously wrong. Hebrews chapter 12 says, look diligently into your life lest you misunderstand the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and trouble you, and you, as a result, defile others, lest there be a fornicator or a profane person, a fornicator. Why? Because you feel like life owes you something. 
owes you happiness, owes you connectedness, owes you feeling. And like Esau, for one morsel of meat, you sell every treasure that God has given you. You forget who owes who. You owe God obedience. He's got all the treasures. You have nothing for one morsel of meat because you deserve it, don't you? I deserve a bowl of porridge after a hard day's work. I deserve this little excursion into a romantic relationship after a bit of faithfulness. I deserve this woman who gives me attention, the minister says, because my wife doesn't. I deserve this little excursion with this man because my husband doesn't understand me. And you sell what God is wanting to become your inheritance for such a small little price. I deserve to be heard because I have ideas too. You can fill in the blank. You understand what I'm saying? Verse 17, you should know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he would have inherited what? Did it say when he would have been granted repentance? No, it says when he wanted the blessing. The blessing is not repentance. Do you understand that? The blessing is I want my future and my life to be wonderful. That's what Esau wanted. He was rejected for he found no place of repentance. There was no path to him Having that situation in his life changed. He was not going to get to the repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And here's the thing. It, grammatically, can just as accurately look back to the antecedent of repentance or the blessing. When you read, though he sought it, you have to supply what is the proper noun, the antecedent that the pronoun it is supplying. And I am saying to you that the it is the blessing. He did not seek repentance. He sought the blessing with tears. And because he sought the blessing, instead of coming before God and understanding himself as owing God everything and that God doesn't owe him a blessing, given the sin that he had committed, there was no way for him to get back into what he was at bottom seeking because he was seeking it in the wrong way. He was thinking, God owes me a blessing. I am weeping. How long do I have to weep before you, God, before you give me a blessing? And God is saying, until you find out that I owe you nothing, you owe me shame for your sin. Can you blush? Sometimes the scriptures say, could they blush? No, they could not blush. Listen, for example, to the translation of Charles B. Williams, the Williams translation. One particular translator, among others, by the way, who understands what the antecedent to it is in Hebrews 12, 17. His translation reads like this. For you know that when later he, that is Esau, wanted to get possession of the blessing, he was rejected 
for he could find no opportunity to repent, although with tears he tried to get the blessing. He mourned his loss, but not his sin. Well, I close, as I believe I closed in our last teaching, and clearly, as the Lord allows, we will have yet one more teaching on this topic, and perhaps it'll be a relatively short one, because I have only two more points, and they presently are not as substantive as this third point has been. It doesn't surprise me that it took this meeting to work through this, but I close with these remarks from Jonathan Edwards, in which he speaks about the truly repentant sinner who understands himself as a debtor. His disposition is not to barter with God, He has one objective, and that is to bid an eternal adieu to sin. Goodbye forever, as much as lieth in me. Help me, God. That's what I'm coming before you, Lord. Help me to say goodbye to this sin forever. Suppose Esau had come before Isaac and through Isaac to God and said, Father, lay hands on me. And Isaac said, oh, I will. In fact, I'm going to try to trick Jacob out of the blessing and give it to you. And no, father, no, no, my father, don't disappoint me. Don't embarrass me. Don't, don't make my face turn red. Don't you understand what I did? I sold my birthright. Whatever God might do in his mercy is another issue. But myself, I'm the chief of sinners. No, Father Isaac, lay hands on me and pray that I would never do that again. Let me make this clear. What belongs to God is the forgiveness and the change of character that I so desire. What belongs to me is nothing except shame for having sold my birthright. The Bible uses this, brothers and sisters. Be warned about fornication, pornography. The loose use of the tongue in slander and gossip. You've been warned. What belongs to us is to listen, to love God, to have the language of love in the morning. M-O-U-R-N-I-G of repentance. The language of love. Lord, help me. Help me get my tongue, Lord. Lord, help me get my thoughts together. Lord, help me break this bondage to pornography. Pastor, help me. Not what belongs to me is time on my phone. What belongs to me is, uh, you know, not the raw pornography, but the sweet little girls, you know, the more or less dressed up that I can find here and there. That's what belongs to me. I'm human after all. Oh, brothers and sisters, you want to walk with Daniel. You want to walk whatever your past life might have been. You want to walk with that weeping woman of Luke 7. You want to walk with the publican who wouldn't even look up into heaven and smote his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. By the way, you go home to your house justified. That's a real act of God. Are you hearing me? And you might find, without you even realizing it, or maybe realizing it, all of a sudden you're li- you are lifting up your, your, your countenance to heaven. And, and, and you're rejoicing and you're filled with joy and you're free. But you didn't get there by viewing yourself as 
I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. I'm religious. I'm smart. The church will benefit from me or whatever ideas you have. And then you go home to your house and you feel like I should just look up to God and feel free. And you find out I don't. I don't. I don't have peace. Because you're just trying to heal the wound slightly. Saying peace, peace. And there is no peace to that method. Well, here's Jonathan Edwards. Repentance is a turning from sin. When once the heart has been broken for sin, sin will be forsaken. When once the sinner has seen the vileness of it, he takes his leave of it, bids it an eternal adieu, desires to have no more to do with it. It was his darling in the past that he used to take delight in and loved above all things that he used to hug and embrace. But now he bids it be gone at an infinite distance and never have anything more to do with him. He desires no more of it. He sees it to be the most hateful monster in the world and therefore desires never to converse with it any longer. And may I add, before I share with you two small points that Edwards makes in this context. I'll get to it in a moment. May I add that Edwards is not saying that the human heart that is the repentant person here, male or female, and whatever the issue of the sin is, he's not saying that they couldn't be tempted toward that thing again. Indeed, they are aware that they might be. That's why they are saying, Goodbye! Did you hear me, sir? Did you hear me, ma'am, sin? Goodbye! Goodbye forever! Stay away from me! No! That's what we're talking about. When that image comes, you say, Goodbye! If you have to smash the phone, smash the phone! If you have to cut your eyeball out, cut it out! Goodbye! No more! That's what we're talking about, brothers and sisters. I'm not kidding. I mean, if you think I mean that to gouging out your eye, I guess pastorally, as a pastor's heart, I would say, no, that actually wouldn't solve your problem. It's in the heart. Jesus is making a point to show you how serious this is. So go get some help if you can't get a grip on it yourself. Two small points, and then we'll close in prayer. Number one, there is a turning of the heart. Before, he loved it most dearly, but now mortally hates it. It stinks in his nostrils and is exceeding offensive to him. He now loves that which is excellent and truly lovely. He delights in God and chooses to converse with him. Hallelujah. You're, you're choosing time with God over that sin, whatever it is. You're choosing... If it was self-attention for you that was your love and your darling that you embraced, that you needed so badly, that you felt you were owed, now you're choosing to be the least in the church. I mean, if Saul had said, Oh God, make me the least in the kingdom, I am so sorry. What a different story we would have had. David would have become king. David probably would have made him one of the chief men in his administration eventually. But Saul kept acting like, you owe me something. You owe me something. God owed him nothing. I hope you can read your Bible well enough to see that that was God's message to Saul. That's a whole story in itself. What a load Saul had to carry. I mean, literally, oh my, I wouldn't want to be appointed king of Israel. But God said, you're the king. This is what you are to obey. 
and under stress he failed. And God said, all right, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. Which means I don't owe you anything. Maybe that's not the God you worship, but it's the God of the Bible, Old and New Testament. The second short point following the initial quote from Edwards is this, and with this we close. It is a change of life. He now acts from other principles, from other ends and designs than he did before. New objectives, new loves and affections, new goals that you're working for. Edwards says, before the devil led and governed, but now the Holy Spirit leads and guides, and he is governed by a living principle of true holiness. This is true repentance.